So last week, Dan preached a message for us, and this was the beginning of a sermon series called The If and the Then. It comes out of 1 Corinthians, and uh, it was an incredible message. And if you were here, uh, you definitely, I know, love that message. And if you didn't hear it, make sure you go back, because a lot of what I'm going to be arguing today is built on the premise of what Dan built on. So our our text for the day technically is 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 12 through 20, which is the which is the section that Dan preached on. But I'm actually going to do something a little bit different, something I normally don't do, and I'm going to be taking sort of a survey, and I'm going to be moving all around to different scriptures today. But the one thread that's going to hold them all together is that in every single scripture verse that comes up, you're going to see that the resurrection is given as the key, uh, the, the, the key principle of why we now have this benefit. Okay, so I, I want to show you how the resurrection and what the resurrection life should look like. I'm going to do that by showing you seven present realities. Because of the resurrection, there are present realities. There are also future realities of the resurrection. And that's what Dan is going to take care of next week. So this week is all about the present. What does it look like to live the resurrection life now? Not looking forward to what's going to come. And we should do that. And, and some of you, just as a word of caution, are going to want me to get there today. Today, towards the end of my message, you're going to be like, get there, get to the stuff that's coming in the future, but that's not my goal today. I'm going to leave you in the present. And and the goal for that is I think that in and of itself is maybe a message that we need to hear from time to time. That maybe we need to, to remember how does the resurrection impact my waking up today, my living today. And Dan is going to hammer it home next week. So this was originally going to be a a multi-week series uh, of like five or six weeks, and we've condensed it down to three. So that was last Sunday, this Sunday, and the Sunday to come. So that's going to be the if-then. And just so you know where I'm coming from, um, I'm going to be arguing really from verse 19. So if you have your Bibles and you want to go to 1 Corinthians 15, you're going to stay in 19. Uh, Before I go there, though, as I mentioned, I was up in... um, in a beach house, and it was wonderful. We had a, a great time. And just so you know, um, I'm thankful to my parents. You, you move back home for multiple reasons. One is so that they pay for you to take your families on vacation. Um, that's highly underrated. So if your kids have not moved back home, I just don't think you've offered to take them places. So if you want them to come back home, that might be something you should do. But we found ourselves in the kitchen one night, and uh, we, we put on a show for the kids. And, uh, and so just so you know, for a little bit of context, at my house, I don't have any cable. So my kids know Netflix, they know Hulu, and they know Amazon Prime. Now, in all of those things, sometimes Hulu has ads, but I control it with my phone through my smart TV. So I don't even have a remote control anymore. Like it, it, just, it just doesn't exist anymore. You just magically say, play this thing, and it plays it on the TV. Well, we were at this, uh, at this beach house, and uh, we put on Disney Junior for the kids, which is, you know, that's good stuff from time to time. You could, uh, those songs stick in my head really easily. And... I'm not going to go there. Anyways, you can, do a lot of, you can do a lot of stuff there. But we're in the kitchen. We're playing cards. And Charlotte, my middle child, is like, Dad, there's something wrong with the TV. You got to come up here and fix it. There's something wrong. And I'm like, oh, man, this is a, I, I don't want to get charged a fee. Maybe we broke something, you know. And if you've ever had kids, when they say something's broken, you almost always assume that they're the ones who broke it. So as I'm heading up to the TV, I see, I don't make it all the way up the stairs. I make it halfway up the stairs, and I see the TV's playing just fine. What she's upset about is that the show is not yet playing because there are ads. This kid has never seen a show with an ad. And she was like, it's broken. This thing doesn't work anymore. Like, this TV is gone. I, I wanted to play whatever, and it's not playing. I have to watch these people, like, try to sell me granola bars. 
And she thought it was broken. And then, you know, my parent and me wants to say, like, you don't know how good you had. Back in my day, I had to use the remote. And we only had 175 channels. See, my generation can't do what the generation before me was able to do. The generation before me was able to say, I was the remote. Well, I wasn't. I had a remote, and it was good. But we had to watch ads, and apparently that's too much for this generation. They can't handle that. See, what's interesting is she thought something was broke because she doesn't actually know how good she has it. And I wonder if that isn't the case for us sometimes. See, I'm going to explain a little bit. Maybe I'll, I'll, th- that makes sense with kids, but what about adult world? And I'm going to tell you a story. I'm not very proud of this story, but I'm going to tell you anyways because I think we all need to see ourselves in, in the world in reality. So the other day, getting ready for this trip, I was vacuuming the van. It was a hot day. Do you remember last week it was pretty hot? Now, if you combine me and my frame in a hot van vacuuming, it was very warm. And I was doing some sweating. And when I start to sweat, I start to get, um, how do I want to say this? No, no, not smelly. That's, thank you for putting that in there, though, and assuming that. I really appreciate that. No, I get a little bit crabby. I get a little bit crabby when things don't go my way. And so what happened is I was going to vacuum the back of it. I hit my head on the door. And I'll, you know how that is. You're like, okay, I, I, I can handle that, though. And then as I went around the other side, the door, every time I tried to open it, there was something stuck in it. So every time I opened the door, it would close again. And I'm like, ugh, this is starting to frustrate me. And then when I go finally to the back side, I realize I don't have enough cord to get all the way over there. And as I'm, start, I'm trying to reach as far as I can, it feels like my shoulder's about to go out of the socket. And what happened is that the, the, the extension cord went under the tire. And so I figure, why don't I just pull it even harder? Because that's what you should do when you're a man and something's not working. Just do whatever you were doing harder. That's what we've been taught. So that's what I did. I was just pulling this thing like crazy. And at one point, it wasn't, it wasn't coming out. And I actually was like, why does this have to happen to me? Why today? This is terrible. And I was literally on like a five-minute in my mind and some vocally, a tirade. Uh, Now, sometimes pastors will ask you a question like, does that ever happen to you? And they don't want an answer, but I would like an answer. Does that ever happen to you? Have you ever been in that? Okay. So you get the principle. And I know it seems a, a little bit interesting to say something like vacuuming is like that, but I wonder how often we're like that in our spiritual lives. I wonder how often... We forget how good we have it. And we say things like, everything around me is going downward. Culture seems to be crumbling. I remember back when we used to pray in school. And we remember we have all of these things. And we say, we look around and we're like, it's, it's tough to be a believer. It's, we're, we're living in a really tough world. And I, and I don't want to minimize those things. But if we get stuck in that pattern of thinking like these are dark times. And it's, it's the hardest time in the world to be a Christian. We start to pity ourselves a little bit. We start to get ourselves in, in sort of a negative mindset that, like, nothing's ever as good as it was, it's, and it can't be good now. And I think that, that I think that's an error in thinking. And, and the reason I want to say that is, if you look in, in, in your Bible, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, I want to do something a little bit interesting today. I want to reverse engineer. Dan said that verse 20 happened, right? Verse 20 says, but Christ was resurrected. That was Dan's whole message last week, that all of those negatives, you're still in your sin, Christ wasn't raised, our preaching was in vain, your faith is futile. Do you remember all of those? He says because of the resurrection, you actually can reverse argue those as now positive things for you. 
And what verse 19 says is, if we have hope only for this life, we are of the ones to be pitied the most, right? So reverse that. If the resurrection actually happened as we believe and as we come to a church and as we just sang, as some of us raised our hand and just sang and just declared that the resurrection happened, and last week we celebrated like crazy, we clapped after every song last week, we were so excited about the resurrection. It happened. That means verse 19 for us is reversed as well. We're not amongst the people to be most pitied. No. In Christ we have a living hope. We have a living hope not only for the life that's to come, but the life that we have now. A living hope. It doesn't say a future hope. It says a living hope, right? Isn't that what the scripture tells us? That we have a living hope in 1 Peter? So if that's the case, we're not to be the people that are most pitied. We're to be, we're to be the people that are the most envied. Think about that for a second. When's the last time you woke up and looked all around the world, and looked all around culture, looked at all these bad things that are happening and thought, I'm the one that's to be envied? Because I got a Savior who rose. I got a Savior who backed up what he said he was going to do. I got a Savior who had conquered death. I got a Savior who gave his life for me. I now have his righteousness. When's the last time we woke up and we're like, yes, that's the reality I want to live in? If we think about Paul, who talks a lot about the resurrection, Philippians 3.10, we just read it right in the beginning. He says one thing in there, and, and the ESV doesn't translate it perfectly in my mind, but it says that I may know him, speaking of Christ, and the power of his resurrection. But in other, other versions, there's an oh there, or there's a yes, or there's a, or there's a may, and what you get is the sense of, oh, I want to know Christ. And moreover, I want to know Christ, but I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection. And I wonder, brothers and sisters, how often is that the case for us? How often do we say things like, I want to know Christ, but how often do we forget that the resurrection is not a once a year celebration where we come together, but it's an everyday reality. The resurrection happened, and because of that, there are things that you can bank on and put in your pocket as present day realities and promises for you. And so that's where I'm going to go. And I want to show you these seven things. And my goal, and I have one explicit goal in this message, is that by the end of it, we get the resurrection out of our heads and down into our guts. Because I can't, I can't tell you the last time the knowledge of something has changed someone. What changes someone is when they get it down in their core of who they are. And if we can get the resurrection down into the core, if we can think about these seven realities, and there are more, than just the seven realities I'm going to show you. But even if I spend five minutes on seven, I got you for 40 minutes, so I got to be careful. I don't want to do that. And I also want to tie it to the resurrection every time. So with that said, let's move to the first one. This is the first present reality, is that we have repentance and forgiveness of sins. Now notice up here, this is from Acts chapter 5, and one of the incredible things is I'm going to be using three Acts passages um, in, in this week's sermon, and I'm just struck by the fact that the very first sermons that were ever preached, the resurrection was just like right there. And now I wonder how often, how many times have you heard a message and we hear Jesus died for you and we never take it to its logical conclusion, which is he's been raised from the dead. He is resurrected. Life, death, resurrection, ascension, and now he's in session. He sits at the right hand of God. Although we have to talk about those things. Those things are very important for us. Nonetheless, in Acts, they're really good at it. This is what it says. The God of our fathers raised 
Jesus. So there you have the resurrection. This is the resurrection. This is, this is the, what's the thread that's going to tie everything together. Whom you killed by hanging on a tree. By the way, when's the last time uh, you've ever, this, is, this would not be considered a um, seeker sensitive church, right? Come in and like, hey, by the way, uh, you know Jesus? Yeah, that guy you hung on a tree? Yeah, by the yeah. So enjoy that. Um, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Now, here's something that I'm convinced about. I'm convinced that you know this. I'm absolutely 100% convinced that you know that because of the resurrection, you're no longer in your sins. If you reverse engineer the 1 Corinthians passage as well, up in verse 13, it says, if Jesus has not been raised or if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. The positive of that is your faith is effective and so you are no, you're, you're no longer in your sins, right? We can reverse argue it that way as well. And so there are many of you in here that are like, yeah, I know that, Adam. So why, why, I mean, it's a reminder, but why are you putting this one first? And the reason I'm putting this first is, you know, I have my office hours, and I have people that come in for counseling, and I have a lot of high school students that come in and speak with me. Uh, we do Starbucks, and I do a lot of different things. And this issue almost always comes back to this. It almost always comes back to people not actually living in the reality of being dead in their sins. Or should I say, alive. No longer in their sins, they're alive to Christ. And so let, let me just see if I can break this out a little bit for you. You ever do something that you absolutely thought you had already conquered in your life? You ever, you ever had this thing where you've, you've, you, you have set yourself up in a way that you're like, hey, listen, that one thing that I do, I'm never going to do that again. So don't worry about that. I'm just never going to do that. And then lo and behold, when you least expected it, you went off and did that? You don't have to tell me and raise your hand if you've done that. I know you've done that. That's what it means. We've all done that. When that happens, how have you responded? How have we responded? What I've noticed in, in my life is that what we do in those moments is we start to question who we are in our spiritual legitimacy. We say stuff like, one day I'll finally get this sin thing figured out and then Jesus will love me. You ever, you ever think that way in your life? You ever have that kind of thinking? Like one, one day once I get this figured out, once I get this sin issue, this one thing, then Jesus can finally love me? You ever, you ever live in that reality like every time you mess up that somehow... Uh, Christ's love for you isn't there anymore and then all of a sudden when you ask for forgiveness now you have his love again I mean I can tell you that happens because many of your many of your uh, high school students believe that way they believe like every time I do something wrong I'm in trouble with God and so I got to make it right with God before I can feel his love again I think that's an issue that we we have over and over again and so when we when we fail when we mess up we say stuff like one day I'll finally get this figured out or we have this fallacy in our mind that Jesus doesn't love me as I am right now. He loves some future version of me when I finally figured it out. The problem with that is when we say something like that, what we're effectively saying is Jesus made a mistake in choosing me. And I wonder if we don't feel that way sometimes. We say stuff like, he can't love me. He knew who I was and he knew what he did and he knew what I did just last night or he knew what I did last week or he knew my thought life. There's no way he could love me. There's no way he could have chosen me. And so I basically disqualify myself. But look at me. Look at me. If this is you, look right at me. 
Jesus didn't die to save some future version of you. He died to save the version of you that's just right there right now. That's what it means that you're no longer in your sins. See, what we like to do is we put ourselves back in the sins. Does that make any sense? But we do it over and over and over again. When we mess up, we put ourselves back in there. And we sort of heap the consequences of death back on, our, on the top of our heads. And we forget that's not the way we're supposed to live. We're supposed to live within the reality of the resurrection. The empty tomb changes your mentality and your thinking. When you mess up like that, you don't say, woe is me, I must not be saved. You say, oh, how great is the grace of God that even though I mess up, I have a Savior who's good. And the empty grave says, I can still come and I'm still loved. What's a better motivator to change? Don't ever do it or you're going to get in trouble. Or even the things that you do are forgiven fully, forever, and freely. Is that not the gospel? That's the way we need to motivate ourselves to live when we think about this sinful life. When we think about these sins that bear. So I want to, I want to remind you here in the beginning. Jesus didn't look down on you and be like, man, 2,000 years ago he was looking pretty good, but now I wish I would have never done what I did for him. Come on. That's not how it works. But church, we often forget this. And we heap on abuse to ourselves and we self-harm ourselves through all sorts of terrible thinking that we must be the worst rotten people in the world. Now, that being said, one of the biggest um, struggles that I hear with people all the time is, Adam, how do I, find, how do I feel the love, grace, and mercy of God, and how, do I, how does that work itself out in a transformative way in my life? And I'll just say this, and, and this is a personal conviction, that love, grace, and mercy are felt in a transformative way when we're fully known. So here's what often some of us will do. We'll take that sort of thing in our heart that I talked about, that one thing that we don't really like about ourselves, or that one thing that we did, and what we hope to do is then sort of like let up a concrete wall on all four sides of our heart. And just sort of like, I'm never going to let that out. And as long as I just don't ever let that part out, I'm okay. And I'll start working on like my language. Or I'll start working on like when I get angry or whatever it is. But that one thing, that you know that thing, we all got it. That one thing, I'm just going to just wall my heart off to that. And I'm not, I'm not going to be fully known to anyone else. And I'm not going to be fully known to God. I'm just going to sort of like live as if it never happens. Or live as, as, as if it's a never, never been an impulse. But the problem with that is... How do you feel the love, grace, and mercy from God if you're not open with the things that you are really struggling with? If you're not really open and vulnerable with your whole heart? And here's the great thing. To know that we are not in our sins anymore is like a leveling field for all of us. Like that should be something that propels us to want to be known. Because when someone else tells you, oh, I sin too, you're not going to be like, you do? Oh, I mean, if we really believed that we weren't in our sins anymore and we had a friend or a fellow person fall in sin, we wouldn't be like, look at that. We'd be like, don't stay there. Move past it, right? We'd be like running to them. But so often what happens is we look at it like a car crash and we're like, Bo, poor so-and-so. Yeah. Anyways, I digress on that. Number two, we're also going to be here for a long time. Present reality number two. We have salvation from the wrath of God. It says in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, And to wait for his son from heaven, who, 
whom he raised from the dead. Again, there's our connection to the resurrection. Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come. Now, I could not think of anything less popular to talk about in 2019 than the wrath of God. Um, Try preaching about the wrath of God in high school ministry. They're like, say what now? You mean that God who's just all love all the time and makes me, like, exist to make me feel eternally good about myself? You mean that one? And I wonder if that doesn't also translate with us. Like, it's unpopular in our culture now. It's an unpopular thing in our world to say that there is a wrath that's coming from God. Now, if you read the word of God, you should know that that's an absolute reality. And you should be thanking your Savior Jesus on a daily basis that it says in 1 Thessalonians, if you know him, if you're in him, you're delivered from it. It doesn't say the wrath of God gets skipped. It says you're delivered, like plucked out from the wrath of God. So the wrath of God is, is, is happening, and this is the way I can understand it. This is the way I, I feel about it. Bella is eight years old. She's amazing. I love her. But if I just let her, like, run our whole family, would that be smart? Like, if I just said, hey, Bella, come in here. We're thinking about, like, um, taking a refinance out on the house. What do you think? Like, here's all the fees. Here's the, here's the repayment. What do you think? Last, I, last time I asked her, she thought we bought our house for $5,000. And I was like, man, if only. That would be wonderful. The other thing is our house, all we would ever eat is instant cup of noodles. It's her favorite thing in the world. But think about this for a second. Her and her eightness, like letting her run her house in our eightness is not smart. And I know that because I'm almost in my 40s-ness, Right? So I have an obligation to run our family, and I know, I, like, I'm older than her, and I'm a little bit wiser than her, and I have a little bit more knowledge than her. So it would be, it would be wrong of me to just say, you can run this household however you want. It would, like, be, it wouldn't even be kind, because we would, like, we would be destitute. So I have to use the wisdom that I have gained in my 39 years. I ain't 40 yet. I'm coming there. Uh, but then I say, so my 40-ness or my 39-ness makes it such that you have to sort of obey what I say. And when she doesn't follow through with the rules of the house, what does dad get to do? Consequences. So that they might remember or they might learn or they might grow. But somehow we don't see that principle happening in our world. We see an eternal God who gets to write the rules, who tells us in his word there's a wrath coming, and we say, no, that's not true. No, 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 no. He can't mean that about the sexual ethic of our culture. No, 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 he doesn't mean that. I mean, that, that can't be what he means. Well, is that us in our finiteness, not ruling the roost? Isn't that like me letting Bella and her eightness run the rules? The problem is it doesn't work that way. We have a God who's eternal. We have a God who's infinite, who tells us exactly what's happening. So I'm not saying this to convict anyone. I'm just saying, like, the wrath of God is a present reality that is coming. But the better present reality for those who are in Christ is that we're going to be delivered from it. So it's something to think about. It's something to praise God about. And it's something in our culture to remember. It is actually coming. Number three. When you're sitting out under the stars, under the ocean, and you're hearing it in the, the waves crash, this one will boggle your mind. I was under this one, and I was like, three hours later, I was like, what? I'm, I was still like, I can't believe this. I mean, yes, you know it's true, but when's the last time you ever stopped and thought this? Romans 6, 9 through 10. We know that Christ, and here's the tide of the resurrection again, being raised from the dead, will never die again. 
Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Think about this. We have a Savior, brothers and sisters. We have Jesus who will never die again. When's the last time you let your mind just soak in the reality of that? When's the last time you let your mind just soak in the reality like it doesn't end? The goodness of our Savior doesn't end. It's a reality that goes on forever. In our minds, in our world, everything ends. Everything has a logical ending or a conclusion point. But it's no conclusion. It goes on forever. He's a Savior forever. He saves forever. And he has a ministry. Like when, Sometimes in our lives when we think about the end of things coming, we think about the end of this life, we think then I'll go to heaven and it'll just be this wonderful barbecue and I'll ask Paul what was it like to fight wild beasts in Ephesus and I'll, I'll be able to finally see the design of the ark. We think it's going to be this awesome time. Think about this. Think about what Jesus does. Jesus, once he's raised, it says he's living a life right now. And what life is he living? He's living it to God. Just for a little bit of context on where we're at in life. Like, that's where we're headed. We're living towards a reality of living to God. We live now to live for God. Like, that's where we're headed. It doesn't end. To me, that's a great encouragement. It's a great encouragement when things get tough. It's a great encouragement when we hit a rough patch in life to realize this rough patch will end. What doesn't end is the goodness and the grace and the mercy and the love of God. That's secure because he goes on forever. That's an incredible one. Now, this is going to... I hope, encourage you in a great way because this week I have been mind boggled beyond belief at this next one. Like, and I'm only on number four. But this next one, like, it, like, woo! I hope you're ready to get excited. And if this doesn't excite you, I'm going to beat you up. With love. President reality number four, we have a Savior that prays for us. Just said we have a Savior that never dies. The Savior never dies, and the Savior has a life. He's living that life to God. He's living that life as service to God. Romans 8.34 tells us this. Who is to condemn? Let's just stop there for a second. Remember what I talked about being in your sin, how often we're like, I'm lousy, I'm terrible, I'm the worst person in the world. Who is to condemn? Not even yourself. And why are you not to condemn? says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. Here comes the resurrection again. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. And now, what is God now, what is, what is Jesus now doing? This resurrected Savior, what is he now doing? Who is indeed interceding for us. When's the last time you thought about what Jesus was doing right at this moment? Did you ever stop to consider what he's doing is praying for us? Did that not get you a little bit excited? Does that not make you feel like, huh? I feel a little bit enviable right now. Can I just say that? Can I say when all the culture and all tells us that, that Christianity is wrong and we're dumb and we're bigoted and we've got small minds, I just look at it and say, do you got a Savior that's praying for you right now? I do. And I have it because of the resurrection. And because I know the resurrection happened, that's proof. That's an assurance. I have an assurance that I have a Savior who is praying for me. And what's he praying? Hebrews will tell us a little bit better. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost. Uh-oh, save until we make a mistake. Save to the uttermost. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. So it has to be through Christ and in Christ since he always lives to make intercession for them. What is he praying? Save them, God. Save my people. Save Adam. Save Sean. 
Save Rochelle. Insert your name. This is what the Savior does. He intercedes for us. First John tells us, let's not sin. But if we do sin, we have an advocate, Jesus, who prays for us. Can you, can you let your mind just soak in that for a second, brothers and sisters? Now, you might say, well, we don't know exactly what he's praying for us. We don't. We don't know exactly what he's praying for us. But we get a hint. We get a hint in John 17. And if this is just a hint of how he's praying for us, wow. He's just praying for his disciples in John 17, just to catch you up on the context of that. And now he's going he's gonna to enter into a prayer for us, us now. It says that I do not ask for these only, the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one. When's the last time you've tied your unity to your brothers and sisters in Christ to the prayer of the Savior for you? If this is an argument that we get on the same page and start loving each other really well, I'm not sure what is. Like, how in the context of this can you break somebody else down for a weakness that you probably share? It don't make any sense. Anyways, I'll be on. That's another sermon for another day. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so that they also may be in us. Pause for just one second. As I am in you and you are in me, that they also may be in us. This is the prayer of Jesus. If you want to know what kind of Savior we have and maybe what kind of prayers are being said on our behalf right now, this says, I want them to be in us. I want them to dance with us. I want them to have a vibrant, active relationship with the triune God. Does that sound like a pretty good prayer that a Savior would pray over you? I want you to come see this. I want you to come experience this. I don't want you to have a mental uh, uh, um, ascension to the truth of this. I want this in your guts. I want you, when you wake up in the morning, I want you to say, I got a Savior that's praying for me. You know what he wants? He wants me to be in him and with him. Oh, does that change the way we live? Doesn't it? It should. Now, here's another one. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Oh, it's not just for my benefit, is it? No. We are enviable in a way that the world looks at us and says, how do they have so much joy? How do they not fear death? How, where does that come from? Where does it come from? It comes from the Lord. And what's the net result that people look at it and say, man, I want that. I mean, have we ever been around a brother and sister that are so on fire for the Lord? You ever done this? You, you leave them and you're like, ooh, I've got to get a little bit of what they got. Does that ever happen to you? This is like, that's that idea of envy. Anyways, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire, now I, I underline this, that they also whom you have given me, that's you and I, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. Just, just, just imagine, if you can, that's being prayed over your life right now. I want them here with me, with me, God. I want them here with me. I want them with us. I want them to experience all this. I want them to see our glory. I want the world they're a part of to see the glory. I want the world they're a part of to burn with a little bit of envy. Not a bad kind of envy that it's like, you know, against the Ten Commandments kind of envy. But that kind of envy that's like, man, I kind of want what they got. When you wake up in the morning, don't just be like, let me pour my coffee. Can you sit in this for a little bit? Can you just sit in the resurrection for a little bit? This is where we're headed. Number five. We're coming there. We're coming. 
We have the Holy Spirit. Wow. Okay. We've been talking about all these things, and now I just, the number five, throw out the Holy Spirit. Now, the reason I did that is I, you could preach 15 sermons about how this works out. And so I can't do that for you. Um, but let's read it. In Acts chapter 2, 32 through 33. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we were all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you are seeing and hearing. So what was happening there, this was when the, this was when the Holy Spirit was first poured out, when Peter gets up and he preaches, and this is what he says. He says, this Jesus God raised, okay? This is the Jesus, and now he's at the right hand of the Father, and he receives the promise of the Holy Spirit, and what he's able to do with that Holy Spirit is poured out. The Holy Spirit was always there. It's not like the Holy Spirit was just conjured up, but the gift of being able to pour out the Holy Spirit onto everyone was something that was accomplished through the resurrection. And so here we have, brothers and sisters, you and I, that are no longer in our sins, delivered from the wrath of God. We have a Savior who never dies. We have a Savior who constantly prays and intercedes for us. We also have the gift of the Holy Spirit. Who's got it better than us? But why do we have the Holy Spirit? Lots of different reasons, and, and I can, I'm not going to argue them all, but this one I'm going to say in particular. You've been saved for the mission of God. You've been saved for the mission of God. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that we all have a part to play in the redemptive purposes of God, that we've all been given gifts appropriated by the Spirit for the edification of the body to build each other up. And then after that, it says that we are one body and that we all have to use our gifts in accordance. So, brothers and sisters, what, what I just want to say here is you have the Holy Spirit. You have gifts of the Holy Spirit. And when's the last time you've come to church expectant to use those? When's the last time you've come into a gathering like this and thought, Man, I can't wait to use the gift that the Holy Spirit has provided to me to build up my brothers and sisters in this church. See, I'm convinced, I am absolutely convinced that more often than not, we come to church as a conference. I get to sit and sing and then I leave. That's a conference that you pay like $5,000 to go to and be encouraged. That's not what church is. You don't come to sit and sing and be encouraged. You come to be used in the redemptive purposes of God. And you have to utilize your gifts and able to do that. Like, you have to see yourself as part of the fabric of the body of Christ who he is using to redeem those around you, your neighbors, your community. We have the Holy Spirit. How often do we take that for granted? How often do we take for granted the fact that I have neighbors right down the road who don't know the Lord? And like, I'm literally a vessel of the Holy Spirit on 314 Miller Drive for a reason. And I've been given gifts from the Holy Spirit with which to love my brothers and sisters, love my neighbors, love all of you. And now I know we're busy. I know that. And some of you will say, man, how can I be used in the purposes of God? Like, if you knew how many sports I had to go to and you know all these things, like, I can't add on another thing. Fantastic. I don't want you to add on anything else. I just want you to invite people along with what you're already doing. Because I want to just, a little bit about my spiritual heritage. I literally was saved um, and discipled through the high school ministry here. And most of the days, what Chris Gray did is he picked me up and he took me on errands. Like that's just how I live my life. He picked me up, he, he didn't text me back then. He had to call my house. 
which is like a big, that's a big deal. So he'd call my house and he'd say, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm not doing too much. He's like, great, I'm coming to pick you up. And I'm thinking like, oh, my youth pastor is going to come pick me up. We're going to probably do something super spiritual today. And he'd be like, yeah, we're going to Long's. Remember when we used to have that there? And then we're going to go over to the bowling alley and we're going to do a little something. And then we're going to go to Price Club. It wasn't Costco back then. We're going to do all those things. But you know what happened in the midst of that? He kept talking to me about Jesus, and I kept seeing his life, and he kept talking to me about Jesus, and I kept seeing his life. And all the while, he's going to CMT and paying bills, and he's going to the car to get his oil changed, and he's just dragging me along. You know what happened? God used that to change my life. So I'm not telling you add on more. I'm just saying, like, if you've got a room in your seat and you're going to the, to the game, maybe add somebody in with you. You never know how the Lord's going to use it. I want to come back to this one day and preach a whole sermon on that. I'm, you can't do that one justice, but I will at some point. All right, number six, we've been given new birth. First Peter 1, 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's the tie again. From the dead to an inheritance that is kept imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Brothers and sisters, we have been saved not for self-protection mode, but for maximum joy mode. We have been saved not for self-protection mode. That's not what we're saved for. We're not saved for that. We've been saved for joy mode. And, 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 how, and how can we not? See, relationship with a God like this, who ha- we have a living hope here, right? It doesn't say a future hope, it says living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus, so that's, we, we can absolutely know that we have this living hope. And what is the living hope? That we have an inheritance that is kept imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Like it's kept for us. So if that's the case, if God is doing the keeping on our behalf, we don't have to do the keeping. We don't, we don't have to be the ones of saying, like, I just got to keep everything around me safe all the time. That's not what has to happen. You can live freely and sacrificially amongst other people and amongst your community knowing that you have a God who is keeping it for you. That's a living hope. It's not going anywhere because when you finally expire, guess what's going to be there for you? The thing that you lived for, that hope that you live for, you get ushered right into it. Did it fade? No. Was it defiled? No. Did it perish? No. And how do we know that? Because there's no one in the tomb. Does it make sense? Like, this is six awesome, wonderful things. I don't know how my voice got up there. That's weird. I did not like that part. I didn't like that part. But what sounds better to you? What sounds better? Waking up in the morning and having an active, vibrant, flourishing relationship with Christ the one where we realize he invites us into this divine dance of a triune God. Come be a part of what we're doing. I want to show you my glory. I want you to be in us or white knuckle moral obedience. What sounds better? And then ask yourself, which one you actually live in? Because I promise you in a room this size, someone's grasping so tight that I can see the whites of their knuckles. And they're just saying, I'm just not going to do it anymore. And then God's going to see that I'm not doing it and he's going to save me. He's already done it through Jesus. Let go, let the blood vessels come back, and then raise that hand and say, amen, thank you, Jesus. That's how I want you to live. Don't white-knuckle it. And better yet, 
Don't teach your, your, your sons, your daughters, the people in your life that that's the way that it is. Sometimes when they make a mistake, you got to tell them that there's grace. you got to teach them. you got to show them. Anyways, that's another sermon too. I'm not going to go there. Last one. And then I'm going to give you just a couple things to, to take from it. Present reality number seven, we have proof of coming judgment. Proof, or you could even say assurance. The, the, the passage says assurance. It says Acts 17, 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So the resurrection is our assurance. What's the assurance of? That judgment is coming. Adam, this, that sounds like um, that's the one that's the, uh, not as encouraging as the other ones. I like the other one. I like that. Why didn't you just leave it at six? I like six. How come you gave me the seventh one? And why is it a present reality? Well, here's why. If you know that there's proof of a coming judgment and you know that you have been saved from it, does it change the way that you live with the people around you? Do you all of a sudden have to compare anymore? Like what's to compare to the world? Like these seven, and there are more if you would look at them, these seven present realities, I mean, Dan, ha Dan is going to talk about the future next week. Well, I, mean, I haven't even really touched it yet. I mean, when's the next time we looked at the world and be like, oh, sure would be nice to have what they have. No, it would not. That would be garbage compared to this. Like don't look at a garbage heap longingly. That's terrible. Don't do that. Judgment is coming now. While what they're living for is garbage, the people who are living that life are treasured. And if we know that left to their own devices, they are going to be wrapped up in the judgment and the wrath of God, does it not change the way we love our neighbors? Does it not change the way that we love our spouse who maybe doesn't follow the Lord? Does it not change the way we love our wayward sons or daughters? Does it not change the way that we love those who don't know better? You've been saved for some of that. For what purpose? That you can spend some time with them, be around them. And if you live in the realities of the resurrection and you know that you've been saved, you're out of your sins, you know that you have a Savior who's praying for you, you know that you've been delivered from the wrath of God, you know that you have the Holy Spirit, and you live according to that reality, I promise you, those people next to you will see something different in you. And you know what it will bring up for them? Oh, I need to have me some of that. I want to be, I need to have me some of that kind of Christian. I want to walk down my neighborhood and people be like, that's that dude who's got a Savior praying for him. He's glowing. Not physically, not literally. You know what I'm saying. We don't really glow. I want to just say that. But we do in a, in a sense. That's the kind of person I want to be. So to bring it all home, how does this change us? How, do, how does a resurrection change the way we live now? Well, first is we remind ourselves that as Christians, we're to be envied, not pitied. We don't watch the news and throw up our hands and be like, it's terrible to be a Christian nowadays. No, it isn't. The more culture breaks down around you, the more opportunity there is for you to glorify God and be like, even though it's all crumbling around me, I got a, I got a joy and a satisfaction because I know what's here isn't eternal. And what is eternal is going to be kept for me by God who saved me. And that's an opportunity. Too. We can live in the knowledge that our rescue and victory is complete. The next time you fail, you don't have to live in that failure and let it define you. 
You don't have to say, well, I'm just a terrible person who makes all these mistakes all the time and I must be the worst thing in the world. You can say, oh, I'm not somebody who's fully saved yet, but thank God I've got a Savior who is praying for me. And what's the prayer saying? Get up here with me. And God, would you bring him to us? Don't stay in what you're not in anymore. We can live in the knowledge that our rescue and victory is complete. You can live in that every day. You can remind yourself of that every day. And you can remind yourself of that when you fail. And my hope and prayer is that you do. Third, we have a confidence rooted in the resurrection that allows us to persevere. The beginning of 1 Corinthians 15 says, Brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel that we first preached to you. And in the end it says, Now, brothers, stand firm. Don't tire of doing the work of God. That's what the whole argument of 15 is. If you remember the gospel and you remember that the resurrection is a fact, you can now walk confidently and boldly in who God is for you and you can stand firm. And those are just three ways that I look at it. So that officially sort of wraps that up. We're going to move into a time of taking communion. And I know we often look at communion as a looking backwards to what Christ did for us, and that is true. But this was meant to be an ongoing ordinance he gave to the church to remember. Were we supposed to remember his death? Yes, but we're supposed to remember that the death did not end it, that there was a resurrection. And so my prayer for you is as you come forward, take a moment and just, and just sit in the resurrection. Just sit in the resurrection and then come in that sort of anticipation and that sort of hope. Take the first steps towards a resurrection life as you come to the table. I pray that you do it, and I pray that this week changes happen because of it. Let's pray. And the, uh, those serving can come forward. Father, we're thankful. We're so thankful for your word. We're thankful for your word because it is true. And every verse we looked at is true. And the main point of the argument is that it's the resurrection. God, that's, that, that's, that's what we have. It's a guarantee. It's an assurance of who you are for us. You're such a good God. Jesus, you're such a good Savior. Father, I pray that we would be moved, our affection would be stirred, we'd be moved to action. We pray it in your name. Amen.